Hello and welcome to Nightlight. There's a book written a few years ago, the name of which I have forgotten, but not the message. It had to do with what the author, who was a professor of Testament history, saw in many of his students. And it was what he called a pagan preoccupation with finding and doing the will of God. I'm sure that very sentence strikes us as odd. What could be pagan about wanting to do God's will? Well, there's nothing pagan about wanting to do his will. But the message of this book was that it can become a pagan preoccupation to always be preoccupied with finding and knowing the will of God. Because really what that is, is a cover for a desire to know the future and therefore not have to trust God. It's the finding and the knowing part that can be really nothing more than trying to control your circumstances so you don't have to rest in the Lord. If you want to know the will of God, that's Jesus made that pretty easy in John 6 verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And there's other verses we could turn to. Fretting over how you might miss God's will in the various issues of life becomes not such a big struggle if you have settled this one basic issue that you are looking to Jesus for life. Dr. Dallas Willard said when his kids were young they had a large backyard to play in. It was fenced and safe and had a swing and had a sandbox and all kind of things to play with. and They were in his will as long as they were inside that fenced area. They didn't have to run in every five minutes to ask, Daddy, what is your will? Can I go from the sandbox to the swing, etc.? They were in my will, he said, anywhere they were inside my realm. And that's the way we should live, any, anywhere we are. It's been said wisely by some teachers I've heard, and I think they're right, that the shepherd doesn't go around giving the sheep specific blades of grass to chew on. He only interferes when the sheep is about to do something harmful. We could go through several other important verses that speak of the will of God, but they're pretty self-explanatory, and that's really not what I want to spend our time on today. I just began with this short introductory explanation about doing God's will because it can be such a preoccupation in people's minds that we, if we don't at least mention it at the beginning, uh, it'll be stuck in some people's minds. Why didn't you talk about that? So I did. But the main subject is related, but it's different. And that has to do with our own wills it is possibly a more pagan idea than Christian to want to know the will of God because it really only is a form of trying to know the future so we don't have to trust God. We've said that. So let's lay that aside and realize we can't know what we can't know and examine what we do know but what we don't do. What we do know but what we don't do. The unknown vast ocean of the future will still be out there for us no matter what we have revealed to us or what we don't have revealed to us. But it is the known stuff, the stuff we don't know seems uh, to be helping us avoid looking at. Maybe that's why we might rather focus on the vast ocean of the unknown and the unknowable. That way we don't have to wrestle with the easily located, knowable stuff that's right in front of us that we never obey. Now, before you get nervous and start thinking that this is going to end up being a diatribe on all the stuff you're not doing right so that you can be feel guilty about it and then make a new list, lay that aside. Uh, here's another verse on the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Then a short bit later in the same letter, Paul writes 
in chapter 5, verse 23, may the God of peace, and that, that word is shalom. It is not just peace as we say it in English. In sh Hebrew, shalom is fullness of being, fullness of identity, fullness of purpose, fullness of joy, fullness of uh, all that you were exist uh, created for. May the God of shalom sanctify you completely, spirit, soul, and body. And then in chapter 3, verse 13 of the same letter, he says, he prays that God will establish your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy. Establish your hearts so you'll be blameless and holy. Philippians 1, 6, he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. Hebrews 12, he's the author the perfecter of our faith. Jude 24, to him who is able to keep you from falling, present you faultless before his throne with exceeding joy. First John 3, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know when we see him, we shall be like him. All just a few verses that help us understand that whatever place we are in, whatever circumstances we're in, whether we are enjoying them or enduring them. God is in those details. And we can rest in the fact that he has allowed or placed us where we are because he is after something far more precious to him than accomplishing some hidden will through us. His will is that we grow in love and holiness. In other words, to become like him. That's his will. And he's always working in us to bring that about. Now, if you're hurting right now due to any number of issues that life brings, it's truly comforting to know what I just said. I mean to really know it. I'm not out of God's will if I'm seeking God's heart. No matter what I'm in, no matter what I'm doing, I'm turned in the right direction, even if, even if, if I've been in the wrong direction. If I've turned towards seeking his heart, then I'm heading in the right direction. I'm in his will. Sometimes I encounter people who are hurting from some seeming failure in life, a failed marriage or a failed business or even a failed ministry. And it is a pleasure to be able to help those people see that whatever classroom they just came through or are now in where they are failing is only serving to help them examine their own hearts before the Lord and to allow him to enter into their lives more deeply than they would have without the failure, without the pain of the failure. He's not ever the author of the pain. He allows the pain and the painful path to help us learn to discern so we can walk straight with him, not away from him. So whatever it takes to bring us closer to him is a good thing, even when it's not in itself a good thing. You are never being punished for missing God's will. God's too big to miss anyway. That, by the way, that idea of being punished for missing God's will, now that's truly a pagan idea. The gods must be angry. Kill you a bloody sacrifice and offer it to him to calm him down. I want to tell you, your father is the God of all comfort and the Father of mercies who comforts you, sometimes with a hug, sometimes with an arm around you to help you move forward into battle. Both meanings of the word comfort, to surround and protect or to surround and fortify for battle. Both meanings of the word comfort apply to us. We need either and sometimes both at the same time. But that is always, always his heart focus, always his aim. That whatever circumstance you are in, even if it was your fault, will help you turn more to him and become more dependent and more willing to listen to him. In scripture, to listen means to obey. Well, for that matter, it, it means that in my house too. It meant it at your house. It meant, all parents know that. Why didn't you listen to me? are you listening to me? We don't mean when we say that to our children, are you just audibly connecting with the words I'm saying? Are you hearing, heeding it? Are you doing it? 
remember hearing and then later saying the same thing to your children. So, you know, you, you heard it, now they're hearing it. To listen to God means you are seeking to obey or you would not be trying to listen. God is not unrighteous to become angry at you for stumbling when you are trying the best you know. My Lord, how we confuse God with human bad parenting. Now, I don't say that to make any parents listening to me feel bad because you have been at times a bad parent. We all have been at times bad parents. I say it to help us not make the very human error of transferring our own human experiences onto the face of our Father, then aching over feeling his anger. He's not angry. He's working to bring you about into a deeper sanctification you're becoming like him so you can become truly free and loving. Now, here's a funny, not funny haha, but funny weird. Here's a funny thing. We are vastly out of touch with most of what is going on inside of us most of the time. Uh, it is estimated by some people who study this kind of thing, <laughs> who they are, I don't know, but... People that study brain function estimate that there's as many as 15,000 words that goes through a person's mind in a single minute. That means a whole bunch of them are useless or are diversions or are mental illnesses or are advertising or whatever. But God is working to bring about your sanctification. And and in the, the working of that, he has to get us in touch with a whole lot of issues we're never conscious of, but that do pop up and take us in directions we don't want to go. I mean, we're vastly out of touch with ourselves. When I used to pastor, I was always wary of dear, well-meaning people who introduced themselves as saying, I'm just a simple, down-to-earth, honest person. I am what you see. I have no hidden agenda. <laughs> I never was wrong. Every time they were the very ones that would end up being a pill. Uh, I, I'd like to say I was wrong, but I just wouldn't. They all had vast issues deep inside that they weren't in touch with. And when the right or the wrong stimuli started up, it all came out. We all have certain degrees of self-deception working in us and on a certain level, that's not a disaster. But it will eventually be confronted by the spirit of truth. And the sooner the better. It is usually through circumstances that that happens. And it is usually because of people that those circumstances evolve. So the main question for us is this. How will we choose to engage difficult encounters, whatever they may be? What will our will be in those situations. We don't have to wonder what God's will will be. His will is your sanctification. His will is that you look to Jesus. His will is that you be like Jesus. So you don't have to spend any more time wrestling over what God's will is. What is your will? The word will in Hebrew, uh, Leb is one of the words. As, as usual in Hebrew, there's several words. But leb is among several other related words, and it's the word for heart. And though the Western mind tends to want to dissect us into parts and then decipher which parts do what, what thing, you know, which part does this and which part does that, Hebrew doesn't do that. We say things like, well, I know I was wrong to do what I did, but God knows my heart. We all can think of examples when we have either heard or even said things just like that. The implication there is that there's a great difference between our wrong actions and our right motives. And let's give it the benefit of the doubt that it maybe actually there are some times when that might be true. But usually, if we'll be honest, we are trying to flounder around to cover ourselves. The answer is yes, God does know our hearts. 
what is in our hearts comes pouring out of our mouths and manifesting in our behavior. Jesus said so. The heart and the behavior are one. Yet, I did say earlier, didn't I, that we are vastly out of touch with what is fully going on inside of us. That is still true. Both facts are true. Our hearts and our choices are directly connected. And there are still yet, having said that, vast rivers of underground feelings, desires, attitudes, memories, and emotions that we are not ever fully in touch with. Our inner self is divided. The Bible tells us about being double-minded. In James chapter 1, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. This not only can refer to one who cannot make up his mind and make a decision, but more to the point, it is addressing one who is divided in his loyalties and in therefore in his faithfulness. He loves God with his mouth, but his heart is far from God. Now, I, Clay, you just said, what is in our heart comes out of our mouth. And eventually that is true. But between the, the moment you speak and the time uh, your heart gets really revealed, there may be some period of self-deception or deceiving others that goes on. When a person is double-minded, they're also double-tongued or fork-tongued, which sounds like a serpent bite, doesn't it? Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18 warns us to watch over our hearts which is the seat of our wills. For out of it come the flow of forces that control our decision-making. David, King David, thankfully, expresses this struggle often in the Psalms. And we get a lot of comfort out of those verses. Psalm 139, Search me and try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any crooked way in me. And then lead me in the way that is everlasting. Jeremiah 17.9 says that our hearts are deceitful and desperately crooked. Who can know it? God searches the hearts and tests it so as to give it a gift to that person according to their deeds. See, heart and deeds, heart and deeds. So our deeds are connected to our desperately crooked hearts. And now we know that. It doesn't take a lot of teaching to figure that out. All you got to do is be, look in the mirror and be honest. Look at your track record and be honest. But here's the, here's the deal. We, as God's people, are born of the Spirit and our hearts have been transformed. And we must not over-identify with Jeremiah's words about the heart being desperately wicked and crooked. Jeremiah also prophesied in chapter 31, verse 33 of his prophecy, that he, God would write his will on our hearts and we would be his people and we would be delivered from a crooked heart. This new heart was foreshadowed in David, who so often at times behaved like a man living under the dimension of the new covenant. Listen to him when he cries out in Psalm 63, "'My soul longs for you.'" My flesh cries for you in a dry, weary land where there is no water. And then his, uh, his disciple, Asaph, writes in Psalm 84, My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Your flesh can actually come to a point where it no longer is battling against your heart, but you become one in worship. Your flesh can cry out for the living God. I'm not fully there yet, but I've got the promise and I can smell it and I'm pursuing it with all my heart, all my heart that I'm in touch with. <laughs> Psalm 86 verse 11, David says, give me an undivided heart. Or the King James says, unite my heart to fear your name. Let me be fully present to you. Or as C.S. Lewis put it, let, it, let it be the real me who prays and let it be the real you I pray to. I mean, have you ever caught yourself praying 
and realize I'm just talking. I'm just jibber-jabbering. I'm not really talking to God. I'm not even talking. It's not even the real me talking, and it's not even the real God I'm talking to. And you snap out of it, I hope. Uh, We've explored this subject in great detail in a series called Integrity of Heart, and then another related study on sanctification called The Fire of God, if you're interested in pursuing this in more detail. But for here and now, let's ask ourselves this question. Do I recognize where I am still being double-minded, fork-tongued, operating in the old deceitful heart, not watching over what flows from my deep, secret, hidden inner reservoirs? Again, the good news is that Jesus promised that those deep inner springs in us, which are crooked, which are mixed, would be filled with living water that would spring up as rivers of living water flowing out from us. That's John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38. For some, this may be faster than for others. Some people come into this inner cleansing easier than others do, but we're all destined for it. Eventually, every dark stream of inner confusion and bitter pain or grief or fear or agonizing memories will be washed out of us, and in their place, a fountain of living water will become our normal flow of life. But it must be a process. How can it not be when we know ourselves the way we do and we know others the way we do? And then Paul writes in Romans 7 about the tug of war in the man whose desires are one direction and his behavior is the other direction. Jesus warns the disciples in the garden to pray so that they won't give in to temptation because though their spirit is willing, their flesh is weak. And Jesus obviously strongly implies in that statement that there's a way to pray so that your temptations don't win over you by your weak flesh. There's obviously a way to do it, or he wouldn't have said that, but how many of us do it? James writes, under the new covenant, that bitter water and sweet water should not come from the same heart But he was obviously having to address that because it was coming out of people's hearts, bitter and sweet. And we can all see it in ourselves, double-tongued, double-minded, mixed in our heart focus, mixed in our affections, loving God for a few seconds and then forgetting him for a long time. Thoughts pouring through our minds that are at times so mixed up and so crazy we are thankful no one can ever know them. And we may even fear we are becoming crazy. If if I turn some of the stuff that goes through my head into cartoon characters like SpongeBob, yes, I do have stuff like that that goes through my head. I could sell it and make a fortune. Or I could get taken away in a paddy wagon, depending on who I'm dealing with, I guess. How does this uniting of our hearts this deep inner cleansing of our inner waters, this integrating of our desires and wills to become one with His, how does that take place? We've established that we need it to happen. We've established that it hasn't fully happened. We've established that it is partly on its way to happening. But how does it really get moved forward It does happen, you know. Others before us have gotten there, maybe not fully, but they sure got way farther down the road than we are. You know some of them, or you have read after others of them. It's not impossible, not totally out of reach. And beside that, God promised it, Philippians 2.13. It is God working within you to give you the desire and the power to accomplish his will. God is at work in you to give you the desire and the power. See, that's the two. Romans 7 says, I have the desire, but I don't have the power. Philippians 2 says, God will give you the desire and the power. Now how? Hebrews 13, 21. Just listen to these promises. Just bathe yourself with these promises. 
Hebrews 13, 21. Now may the God of peace, shalom, not absence of conflict, peace, but fullness of peace in the Hebraic meaning. Now may the God of peace fully equip you with every good thing that you need to do his will so that you may accomplish, he may accomplish in us what is pleasing in his sight. Jude 24, I've already mentioned, unto him that is able to keep you from falling and present you without fault before his throne with exceeding joy be honor and glory forever. Ezekiel 36, verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways and be careful to keep my commandments. Now, if you read that with an old man's or old woman's, I mean the Adamic old man, if you read that verse out of a religious bondage mindset, you'd think, well, he's saying, I'm going to cause you to be careful to obey. That's not what this is talking about. When he says, I'll put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in ways and be careful to keep my commandments, it doesn't mean you're being careful like a child afraid he's going to get smacked. It means that you are so transformed on the inside that you give the same care to doing what's right that God has in his heart. Now how will God cause us to walk in his ways without turning us into robots? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 through 10. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you affectionately and watches over you. Be vigilant for your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, whom you are to resist steadfastly in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in all of the spiritual family, your brothers and sisters worldwide. And the God of all grace, after you have suffered a while, will establish perfect, strengthen, and settle you. So James chapter 1 verse 2, we know these verses. I've, I've heard these verses for years. I've never liked them. I didn't like them. <laughs> I'm liking them more and more because I'm understanding them. James 1 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials and temptations because you know that the trying of your faith develops endurance. But let that endurance have its perfect, complete work so that you may become complete, so that you will lack nothing. Obviously, I lack some things. There's, there's, there's something that can happen that will help me lack nothing. What is it? Confronting various trials and difficulties. Romans 5 we can rejoice when we face trials and temptations because they develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation being made complete in us. Well, the necessity of lifelong dealings that God allows which we understand are normal daily battles of life, are in order that our inner life may be transformed and aligned with his will while not overriding our wills, but by grace causing our wills to become conformed to his will because the outer pressures against us awaken us to our need to cry out for him. That way, God's sovereign will is making his will come to pass in our life, but he's not overriding our will to do it. He's actually, in a wonderful, wonderful way, causing our wills to become his will. Uh, this results in our willingly embracing him like a child running to his father's arms when he's frightened. Jesus was already in that mindset in the garden. He didn't have to, 
He didn't have to wrestle between two wills. But he did have to bring his human will into alignment with the Father's will. I know that's a huge theological question we can't get into now, but we know it's true. He said, not my will, but yours be done. And he meant it in his human will. Giving, uh, uh, when he said it, he was, uh, he was reacting in the normal human way any of us would react. He wanted to avoid pain. He wanted to avoid the agony of things so horrible that he was facing that we can't even talk about it. But he was submitted to the Father's will, which was for the destroying of sin and satanic bondage. Jesus put his human will on the altar of the cross and embraced the divine will in full oneness with his Father. And by that sacrifice broke the power of sin and overthrew satanic bondage off the entire human race. Hebrews 2 and Philippians chapter 2 both tell us Jesus did this as our example that we are to follow. Though we can, of course, add nothing whatsoever to his perfect work. That work was meant, among other things, to pave the way for us to, as Peter says, follow in his steps. Read the entire chapter of Hebrews chapter 2 and Philippians chapter 2 and all of the book of First Peter to get the whole message of how we follow Jesus to, through, and beyond the cross, carrying our own cross, and thereby join with him in the ongoing destruction of the works of darkness, uh, which he completed at Calvary and which we carry on since Calvary. For we suffer with him, and we will reign with him. But that's a whole other subject, although it's connected. Now, in the moments we have left, let's look at the mechanism or the, the mechanics of our inner struggle that these trials are meant to help us uncover and face. St. Augustine wrote about this struggle between our two wills. That will of God, that will that says, I want to do God's will, and then that other will that is actually manipulated by a million unconscious deep-seated secret attitudes and feelings and desires and lusts and demonic influences possibly that are going on deep inside of us. Uh, Augustine, now this is a little complicated, but I'm, I'm going to read through it and we, we might have to unpack it a little bit. Augustine says, the mind orders itself to make an act of will. And it would not give this order unless it willed to do so. Well, that's logical, isn't it? Yet it does not carry out its own command. But it does not fully will to do this thing, and therefore its orders are not fully ever given. It gives the order only insofar as it wills. And insofar as it does not will, the order is not carried out. For the will commands that an act of will should be made, and it gives this command to itself, not to some other will. The reason, then, why the command is not obeyed is that it is not given with the full will intact. For if the will were fully intact, it would not command itself to be full, since it already is full. I told you this is a, this is a typical St. Augustine, 4th century philosophical talk. Anyway, it is therefore no strange phenomenon partly to will to do something and partly not to will to do it. It is a disease of the mind. Of course, it is a disease of the mind. It's James 1. Double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. This is why David prayed, unite my heart to fear your name. It is a disease of the mind which does not wholly rise to the heights where it is lifted by the truth because it is weighed down by the habits of that which is not true. So there are two wills in us because neither by itself is the whole will and each of them possesses what the other lacks. I know some of you are thinking, I could say all of this a whole lot clearer and a whole lot with a 
a whole lot less gobbledygook. But just just bear with me. So there are two wills in us. The same is true when the higher part of our nature aspires after spiritual joy while our lower self is held back by the love of temporal pleasure. It's the same soul that wills both. But it is wrenched in two and suffers great trials because while truth teaches it to prefer the higher course, habit prevents it from relinquishing its desires. My lower instincts, which had taken hold of me, were stronger than my higher, which were untried, untested. Habit was too strong for me when it asked, do you think you can really live without these things? Now, what Augustine is doing is spelling out what every one of us could write in our own words. and Like I said a while ago, probably a lot clearer. I got two, I got two wills inside of me. One wants God, wants, wants to follow the Lord. And the other wants to do all kind of self-destructive stupid things that make no sense, or even if they do make sense, they make no sense. Most of us are far too shallow, to be honest. Due to the shallowness of our Christian culture and the general shallowness of the entire Western culture we live in, to ever allow ourselves to delve too deeply into these inner questions which Augustine spelled out, clunky as it was, Yet there's always a danger of morbid introspection which leads us to the bottomless pit of looking into the human psyche. If we do that apart from grace, we'll just fall in and drown in all that dirty water. But what about grace taking us down there and shining a light? What if that happened? Proverbs 20 verse 27 says, The spirit of a man is the candlestick of the Lord, revealing all the deep parts of the inner heart. Man, let me try to say something here about, I don't know if I can say this accurately or not, and I don't want to create a bunch of questions in your mind that wasn't there before, but God doesn't hold a person responsible for all that is inside him, which he cannot even access. Only the living Word of God can divide the soul from the Spirit and discern not only our thoughts, but the intentions behind the thoughts. Not just the thoughts, the intentions behind the thoughts. You have your thoughts, but you have intentions deep behind those thoughts that you're not even fully aware of. The book of Proverbs says the heart uh, is well. There's there's things in the heart that uh, even a man who thinks he knows himself doesn't really know about himself. I mean that theme. That's a whole theme you you find in lots of parts of the scriptures. Uh, Oswald Chambers uses the story of the woman at the well to illustrate this reality about human beings. When Jesus tells her of the water that he can give her. She responds by saying, how can you get this water? The well is too deep. And that's something that we probably say to the Lord in a similar way. Lord, you can't get to the deep wells inside of me that I I can't even touch. Oh yes, he can. That's exactly what we say to Jesus though when we he offers to cleanse out those inner hidden subconscious rivers of mixture uh, that drive us in ways we don't even understand. We claim we trust him as Savior, but we actually say to him, no Lord, uh, I can never change. See, the well is deep. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, who can know the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man that's within him? He may be making a direct reference here to Proverbs chapter 20, verse 5, which says wisdom in a man is like deep water, but 
one of understanding will draw it out. It would take us too far away from our main topic here, but it would certainly uh, be remiss of me not to point out that later in this same letter uh, of 1 Corinthians, Paul goes into some great detail about the meaning and use of praying in other tongues as a means of these deep waters in us finding expression up to God in prayer. Tongues is obviously a much-needed gift given for the purpose of exercising a believer's deep inner being in a way that the conscious mind cannot access, much less express. Uh, Just read through chapter 12 through 14 and you'll see that. What we can access, we are responsible for. And the more we interact with the Lord on that level, the deeper the Holy Spirit's work in us goes until as much as can be presented in this life is brought fully into the light. So in closing, let's take a look at a very helpful picture of how your enemy and mine would like to confuse and trip up this process. Remember earlier I said that the Hebrew Scriptures do not seek to divide us into parts and then assign a different function to each of our inner parts. But the Hebrew concept is that the heart is the core true self, so that what we actually do is what is actually coming from our hearts. The Bible knows nothing of the idea of some emotional heart that operates separately from our willful action. They are one and the same. So when screw tape divides man here into three separate parts, keep in mind the devils dissect dissect us all all the time if they can. Uh, They do it in order to divide and conquer. Uh, So this is the way screw tape wants to see us, not the way God will eventually manifest uh, his grace to bring us to. But screw tape says this. Think of your man and I'm assuming, by the way, that all of you are familiar with the screw tape letters. There might be someone who doesn't know screw tape is a demon who's writing to his nephew demon as to how to destroy a Christian's life. And screw tape says to his nephew demon, think of your man as a series of concentric circles, his will being the innermost circle, his intellect next, and finally on the outside, his fantasy life. Now you can hardly hope at once to exclude from all these circles everything that smells of the enemy above. But you must keep on shoving all the virtues outward till they are all located in the circle of fantasy. And then all the desirable qualities. Now you understand you have to think backwards. What he's calling desirable qualities are evil qualities. All the desirable qualities of hell. You drive those inward into the will. It is only insofar as they reach the will and are there embodied into habits of life that the virtues of righteousness are really of any danger to us. Oh, I don't of course mean what the patient mistakes for his will that conscious fume and fret of resolutions, clenched teeth. But the real center, what the enemy calls the heart, that's what we want to be in control of. The place from which his behavior ultimately emerges. All sorts of virtues painted in the fantasy or approved of by the intellect, or even in some measure loved and admired, will not keep a man from our Father's house. Indeed, they may make him more amusing when he gets there. Now look, this picture that Lewis paints for us through screw tape is maybe one of the most important things you can ever learn after you initially come to Christ. Now, first of all, Lewis makes a point to, remember, to, to remind us that demons lie. 
and they are full of wishful thinking. So it's not so easy to draw a child of God away from God and into hell. Uh, you know, that's that's the devil's theology. That's not. You don't get focused on that. Get focused on the fact that it is very much a reality that many Christians think beautiful thoughts about God, feel beautiful feelings about God, listen to Christian music about God, watch Christian television, go to Christian things, get misty-eyed now and then. But what ultimately matters is not the intellect or the fantasy, but the will or the heart what you ultimately choose to do. Jesus told a parable about two young men who were brothers and their father came and told one of them to go out in the field and work and his fa- he said, yes dad, I'll do it. And then the other one said, uh, no, I don't want to do it. Well, the one who said, yes dad, I'll do it, never did it. And the one who said, I don't want to do it, but he ended up doing it. He said, which one did his father's will? Well, obviously the one that went and did it. This is not rocket science. But we've got, I don't know, at least 12, 15, 1800 years of all kinds of goofy theologies that have gotten more and more convoluted as we've gotten closer to the 20th century. And so now, you know, you actually have Christians who sit around arguing, you know, can your behavior cost you your salvation? Can you be saved and then be lost? All these kind of silly arguments. And the reason I say they're silly is because if you love Jesus and have given your heart to him, it's not ever a subject on your mind of whether you can lose your salvation by a certain act of obedience or a certain series of acts of obedience, of disobedience, I mean. I mean, uh, you know, can I... The attitude seems to be in some people, can I do this and still go to heaven? Can I, can I keep this evil and still go to heaven? Uh, I mean, I know that. I've been there. I, I was 18. I was tw- 19. I was 20. I was, you know, but, but God, in his great love and mercy, allowed enough heartache. God did it. I mean, you say, well, Clay, no, you did it to yourself. I did it. Yeah, I did it to myself for sure. I was there. I can tell you I did it to myself. But the point is, God sovereignly, and nobody can ever tell me it wasn't God sovereignly overseeing it. God sovereignly oversaw my horrible wrong choices that the enemy manipulated and twisted in my life. God, my Father, sovereignly oversaw all of that because he was determined that it would not destroy me. It would only destroy my rebellion and self-will and uh, self-deception. And so he watched over that process until I began to cry out to him, I want you more than I want my sin. I want you more than I want my way. I want you more than I want my will. Can you, and he's doing that in everybody's life that belongs to him. He's doing that. Your heartaches are not meant to destroy you, but they may be necessary to bring you to that place where those deep, false, self-deceptive elements inside of you that you're not even aware of, or if you are aware of them, you deceive yourself out of confronting them. Or you don't know how to confront them. The well is too deep, Lord. I can't reach it. and You can't reach it either, Jesus. Well, Jesus says, I'll, I'll show you I can reach it. And so he, he sets in motion the circumstances of life. Now don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying, you know, God will kill your children to get to your heart. I'm, I'm, that's devilish. I'm not talking about that. None of the agony I went through in this process I'm trying to describe was involved in physical sickness or somebody's death. I'm not saying God can't use somebody's death. I'm just trying to get us out of the habit of thinking God kills people in order to do some sanctifying work in somebody else's heart. I, I know that's too much to get into here, but I mean, I didn't, 
I didn't have to have outward stuff happening to me. What, what brought me to the end of myself was all happening inside my own heart. Nobody looking in the room would see a cataclysm taking place. I might be sitting still looking fairly peaceful. But inside of me was a, a hellstorm of heartache and confusion and fear and lust and rage and blame and unforgiveness and all of that. And God let circumstances, some of them outer, but most of them inside me. Uh, he, he let those be confronted by the Spirit of Truth. So how does God bring us to the point where our will becomes truly, totally His will? How does He bring us to the end of ourselves? How does He bring us to the point where we are really seeking His will, seeking His face, trusting Him, uniting our hearts with Him so that there's no duplicity, we're no longer double-minded, we're not fork-tongued, we're, we stop before we backbite, because not because we're afraid of getting a, a demerit on the rule book of heaven, but because we have a heart like Jesus' heart that no longer allows us to even want to slander somebody, even if they're not a delightful person. We don't want to speak evil of people. We don't want to lie. We don't want to tell a smutty joke or, 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 or cuss or use our mouth in a way that is opposite to the will of God. We do not know ourselves. Only the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, can help us discern our inner motivations. If we want Him to, He will help us. But our desire for that is most often only awakened and increased by trials and difficulties. These are the forces that tear off our outer shell in order to make room for the inner growth towards a larger manifestation of holiness. By God's sovereign, wise, and loving guidance, He moves us through life's seeming random battles in order that our free will may be moved by grace into a place where we freely choose what God was sovereignly willing all along. This is how God helps us fulfill the words of Philippians 2, 12-13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God working in you to will and to desire his good pleasure to bring it to fulfillment. God is smart. God is loving. God is wise. God is holy, holy, holy. Bless his holy name. I mean, I look back, I look back on it all. I, re, I mean, I'm looking back now. It's like somebody who lived through a train wreck and they look back and see just, you know, miles of destroyed track and ruined boxcars, and, and you know it was, you know, you're the one that did it. And all you can see is, you're, here, you're, here I am intact. Here I am. How did I live through it? Well, he set, he, uh, his, his good will for us works to bring us to a place of both longing for him and eventually embracing that will for ourselves. So therefore we count it all joy when we face diverse trials and temptations knowing that the trying of our faith is developing endurance. So in the in the closing minutes that we've got what are you what are you enduring? Are you enduring? The very word endurance automatically points to the fact that what you're dealing with is not pleasurable. It's not easy. It's not fun. It's not in itself fulfilling. But if you've let the Holy Spirit bring you thus far to a place where you can even consider what I'm talking about in, in this message, then it's just really a matter of continuing to endure 
until God, for whatever reason, brings about uh, the change in circumstances that you're longing for. And when I say for whatever reason, he may bring about the change uh, because he knows it's done its work. He may bring about the change because something outside of you that you've been praying about has now been able to be set in a different circumstance. See, not everything we're enduring is because of us. Sometimes we're having to endure because of somebody else. Uh, you know, our brothers and sisters throughout the world that are enduring terrible hardship, it's not because of some issue inside their character that God is having to set things in motion to deal with. It's because of a whole vast array of evils set in motion by other people. They are innocent victims in it. And uh, and yet they're having to endure. I had to endure through a whole lot of things that were not other people's fault. It was all my fault. It was all my wrong choices, my wrong ways of dealing with life and my wrong ways of trying to get my needs met. But what about when the endurance requires uh, something of us of trust when we know it's not anything we it's not our fault and we're innocent in it and there's injustice in what we're having to endure but we do what Peter said in 1 Peter uh, that's why I told you to read the whole book. Just read the whole book of First Peter. That you're enduring fiery trials that are not of your making. You're innocent in it. But like Jesus himself, you're following in Jesus' footsteps. There's, let me try to revisit this just for a minute because I really want to get this across and I only briefly mentioned it previously in this teaching. The purpose of the cross was to save us from sin and death and hell. Yeah, yes, we, we know that. I'm not belittling that. But it's so frustrating that that's, that's become the only focus. So people think the only purpose of getting saved is so you can go to heaven. And so the whole idea is we get saved and then we go to heaven. Well, if that was true, it'd be better to get saved and then somebody shoot us in the head. No, there's more going on here. We get saved and we become his children and we become kings and priests and we carry on in our bearing of our cross the redemptive work that he set in motion at the cross. I'm not saying we bear his cross. Nobody can bear his cross. But what he did at that cross was so that our bearing of our cross would manifest what he did at his cross in the earth. So our suffering becomes redemptive and everything against us is for us. And if we walk in that spirit and we, we suffer, we endure suffering because we love Jesus and we love what Jesus loves and we hate what Jesus hates. And as we're suffering in his name, we're becoming more and more and more like him until finally we become just like him. And I guess that's the resurrection. When we see him, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. But if you, could, if you could see no matter what you're going through, even if it's your fault, God is working it for your good and his glory in your life and bringing redemptive power through it while you're going through it. You will come through it not only smelling, I mean, not, you won't come through it smelling like smoke. You won't come through it with uh, you know, your hair standing on end, barely alive, you will come through it with a sense of accomplishment in being uh, pleasing to God, your own will being united with God's will so that you're, you're not divided inside anymore and you're blessing and comforting and healing people, even those that you may have wronged. I'm trying to paint a very large picture on three different dimensions. It requires probably a whole teaching by itself. But it's related to this. We started out talking about how our divided hearts could become united and how God promised he would make that happen. How does he make that happen so that we obey him without being robots? The only way that can happen is to go through fiery trials. The fiery trials can be of our own making, caused by our own brokenness, 
Or it can be caused by outward things that are not our fault. But it doesn't matter what's causing them. If our heart is set on trusting Jesus and our eyes are on Him, we will be becoming like Him through whatever we're going through. So that whatever you're facing right now is being worked for your good and your ultimate total deliverance and His glory in your life.